And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad that uh, we've got hour two ahead of us now. I can't wait. And I'm so glad I get this time with you. And I hope your day's going good. And if it wasn't going good, I hope it's going better now because we're listening to the show and we're having this time and it's all good. Okay? So it's going to be a great hour. And uh, I think it's uh, time to start. All right, I am so glad to be back with uh, senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska, Pastor Brent Kuhlman. Uh, he is uh, not only a great teacher, but a great thinker and great lover of God's Word. So that's high in my book for a guest I love having on my show. Brent, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Now, I was in Matthew uh, chapter 15, talking, uh, looking at the faith of a Canaanite woman, and I've always wondered if I could have some more teaching on that. <laughs> well, I, in, for my money, this is one of the most uh, delicious parts of the New Testament because, uh, you know, uh, this is a woman who you'd never expect to be a believer because she's a Canaanite. Right. She's not, she's not an Israelite. And, of course, remember Matthew writes his gospel for Christians who are Jewish, of Jewish heritage. So he, he's at pains in his gospel to show Jesus is the promised Messiah. But as we know from the Old Testament, you know, the Israelites were a mixed bag. You had a remnant of believers, and the most, of, most of them didn't. They didn't believe in the promise of the mm-hmm. Savior. And the, so the, what did the gospel do? The gospel went out to the Gentiles, as Isaiah promised, like in Isaiah 56. You know, God said through Isaiah in Isaiah 56 that there would be foreigners who would be believers. And lo and behold, here you have one in Matthew's gospel. But what's really delicious, in my opinion here from this text, Uh, Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, is Jesus teaches us, and Matthew does, because he records this historical episode, of what faith in Jesus Christ looks like, especially when that faith in Jesus is put to the ultimate test. And when I mean the ultimate test, I mean it in this way. When you pray to Jesus, knowing who he is, and that he's come to give you mercy. Like in her case, her daughter's possessed by a demon. Mm-hmm. So she knows she knows that Jesus truly is God, because she says, Lord. And she knows he's the Messiah, because she says, Son of David. And she knows, he's, she knows he's come to have mercy, which would include crushing Satan's head, as promised in Genesis 3.15. And of course, this Satan is oppressing and possessing her daughter. So she prays to Jesus, knowing who he is and why he has come, And she treats him, or pardon me, she treats her as if he is not God for her. Did you hear what I just said? Not God for her, as promised in the Old Testament, but rather he acts as if he's against her. And yet she hangs on to him with all of her heart. This is what makes this so delicious. So check this out. So Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon. That's Canaanite territory. She comes and says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And you would think that Jesus, as the Messiah and God in the flesh, would answer that prayer of faith by saying, oh, that's wonderful, honey. How can I help you? Instead, the text says he doesn't answer her a word. He's silent. Wow. Now, if if that were me, if, if I came to Jesus knowing who he is and what he's for, and he doesn't say anything to me, I'd say, see ya, I'm gone. You're a fraud. With some but resentment, she, maybe. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I put it this way. If I were treated like this, I'd get on social media, and I would uh, 
call Jesus all kinds of names, and I'd make sure that everybody <laughs> mm-hmm. knows he's a fraud, a fake, mm-hmm. so that no one would ever be taken in by this guy again. Point being, she's a believer. And by the way, here's what's also delicious about this text, is that this Canaanite woman is a faither, as I like to say. She's a truster. She's one of our Lord's hangers on. That's how the kids talk, so I like to say it that way. <laughs> She has the faith that the Israelites are supposed to have, okay? So she clings to him even when he doesn't say anything to her. And that's very instructive for all of us because sometimes we ask the Lord for help, don't we? We pray and we ask God for help, Jesus for help, and it appears that he doesn't answer us one bit. It seems silent. She doesn't quit. Mm -hmm. Yes, she doesn't quit, though, does she? No. Then she goes to the apostles. Check it out. Uh, This is again in verse 23. And his disciples came and begged Jesus, saying, send her away, for she's crying after us. So crying after us means that she went to the (laughs) twelve to go to bat for her. Now, these are Israelite men, and they're not willing to help this Canaanite woman. Hmm. And there's a reason why, of course, because, you know, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they were given the promised land, and they were told to drive out the Canaanites, and they didn't do it, not all of them. God said, drive them all out. Remember that in the Old Testament? Mm Mm-hmm. And they didn't do it, and that led to Israel's fall, sinful fall, into apostasy and idolatry. So they're not going to help this Canaanite woman. They're not going to go to bat for her. So get lost. Tell, tell her to get lost, right? Now notice what uh, verse 24 says. He answered. Now the text doesn't say specifically if he's talking to the disciples or to her. Perhaps it's both. But nonetheless, okay. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Holy smokes. I'm telling you what, Bill, again, if that's me, I'm gone. Goodbye. Done with you. Because essentially, you understand what Jesus is saying to her? I'm anti-Canaanite. I'm only pro-Israel. Or in other words, I'm only savior for the children of Israel, and I'm not for you Gentiles. Now, once again, we're learning what? We're learning that even when Jesus appears to be against us, we trust him and we trust his word. Remember, I referenced Isaiah 56. Okay, you can look that up on your own, folks. That's a promise that the Gentiles would be brought into the church and they'd be believers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so obviously she's heard the word and she's a believer. So she's going to trust the word despite how Jesus acts. Doesn't listen, doesn't say a word, and then says, I'm not for you, honey. Remember, I think we've talked in previous episodes when I've talked with you, Bill, that the gospel is what? When God is for you, for your salvation. Mm-hmm. And Jesus essentially is telling her, not, not for you, honey. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Now, again, will, will faith continue to cling to a Jesus who talks and acts like that? Well, she does. Because in verse 25, the text says she comes to him. And kneels before him, or she gets down on her knees, and most likely even on her forehead to the ground. And what does she? She prays again. Lord, help me. This is the yeah. That this is how faith talks. This is how faith prays, even against what she has heard and seen in Jesus. Wow. You see what I'm? What how delicious this oh, is? Oh yes. Because this happens with us all Indeed. the time. Okay. And then I'm telling you what. Third strike here. You know. Then verse 26, Jesus answers her. Now he talks to her. It's not right. I know the English translation says right, but it's literally in the Greek, it's not good. Which reminds me of uh, Genesis, you know, 
it is good or very good. But nonetheless, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the, and then we come with a word that is extremely, it's a slur. It's an ethnic slur. Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the, the dogs. That is to say, once again, I'm not Savior for you, you Gentile woman. I'm only Savior for the children of Israel. Now, I said ethnic slur. What's the ethnic slur there, Bill, in that verse? What is it? Um, I'm trying to think. It's dog. Well, it calls I was, for a dog. Yeah, I called her a dog, and I, I assume that was it, but I'm, you've got me nervous right now. <laughs> well, see, you, this is more than just a micro yeah. Oh, I can see that. I can see that, yes. I just, okay, so, this is a difficult passage, Brent, so this is why I'm struggling a little bit. All right, so I, we, I just briefly reviewed, you know, the Old Testament history where God gave the, the promised land to the Israelites, right. and they were to drive out the Canaanites. And they didn't do it, and it led to their downfall and apostasy and right. exile. Now, over the course of time, the rabbis, of course, gave a name for the Canaanites. It was dog. Okay. So that's what I yes. mean when I say I ethnic did. slur. Yes. All right. I think based, so, on, based on that, Brent, I think it probably is good that we just take a quick pause, and we'll resume when we come back. Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest uh, from Trinity uh, Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We'll be right back. program today, talking about a very interesting passage from Matthew in chapter 15, The Faith of a Canaanite Woman. Every time I've read this, I've always scratched my head a little bit, and Brent, you're helping me quite a bit right now. So when we last left off, we were in uh, verse uh, 26, it is not right to take the the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, talking about that ethnic slur there that uh, Jesus uses. Yeah, bottom line, Jesus is doing what he did earlier when he said, I'm only, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mm-hmm. He's, he, in other words, he's doubling down on this woman who believes in him and praised him wow. and puts her faith to the test and says, I ain't for you, honey. This seems so harsh. Right. Can you trust a Jesus like that? <laughs> <laughs> she does? Yeah. She does. See how instructive this is for us? Because, again, there are times in our lives when things happen to us, our, our daughter might not be possessed by a demon or tormented by a demon, but something else may happen to us. And we come to Jesus in prayer, and we ask him for help to have mercy and to save us. And sometimes it appears he's not listening to us at all. Sometimes the events that happen in our life actually give us the appearance that Jesus is not for us, but rather is against us, dead set against Because keep in mind, I'm not a Jew by, by a uh, ethnicity. Are you? No. I'm a Gentile. Me too. So you see how this is. So when Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, he's saying, I'm only here for the Israelites, not for the Gentiles. But she, she knows the Word of God. She knows the Old Testament better than the disciples standing there. The disciples standing there should have said, yep, that's right, Jesus. She's right. The Old Testament promises that uh, 
Israel will be a light for what? For the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Okay, That was also in, in Isaiah. All right, so he, he does it. Jesus dares to do it. He calls her a dog. That's the biggest ethnic slur you could do. And then what she does is she finds a blessing under the no or a yes under Jesus' no, his answer of no. In what word? The word dog. She, she says, yeah, I am one. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In other words, she said, that's right. I'm a non-Israelite. I'm not a descendant of Abraham, but you're Jesus, and I know you're the Savior, and I know that salvation is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so from your rich table of salvation, I know that as a Gentile, even a Gentile woman, I will be given to eat Let me put it to you this way. The salvational scraps, the salvational crumbs that fall from the children of Israel's mouths, plates, or laps. In other words, she's saying, I'm a sinner. You better believe I'm a sinner, but you're the Savior. And I'm I'm willing to just eat the salvational crumbs that fall from the table. And so her faith, her faith is just persistent. It's pesky. I'm trying to think of another word for that, but it's audacious. In, in spite of how Jesus acts her. And now notice what Jesus does. He, I, I put it this way in a sermon when I preached this text last Sunday. He explodes. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus answers her, oh, woman. And by the way, let me remind folks, we hear that way of talking in English, and we think that's a derogatory way of speaking. It's not. When Jesus says, oh, woman here, that is an, a, a title of honor. Remember in John's gospel, that's how he addresses his mother. So, a woman, great is your F-A-I-T-H. So, Jesus, Jesus tests her faith, strengthens her faith, but most of all, he's teaching us what saving faith in him looks like, as I said at the beginning of our talk today. He is teaching us what saving faith in Jesus looks like in the most extreme uh, anguish, especially when Jesus is acting as if he's not God for us. She, she, she simply clings to the promise from God's word that Jesus is for not only the, the Jews, but also the Gentiles, even when Jesus seems to contradict it. And that's why he says, great is your faith. So he's teaching us, trust me, trust my word, no matter what. And let me say just something quickly about that, if I may, Bill. Please. You know, at the time, at the time of the Lutheran Reformation, Luther in 1520 wrote a seminal uh, essay. It's called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. If your listeners have never read that, they should. It's a seminal work for the Reformation. And Dr. Luther is exactly right in this writing when he makes the connection that the Bible teaches that God's word of promise and faith always go together. So, folks, anytime you read the scriptures, watch how this works. Faith always clings to the promises of God. And that's precisely what this woman is doing here. And this is precisely what Matthew and Jesus are trying to teach us, especially in spiritual distress and trauma. Great is your faith, because Mm -hmm. you trust me even when I wouldn't talk to you, even when my disciples wouldn't go to bat for you. You trusted me even when I acted like I was not for you, but rather against you. Wow. Brent, that's really, really amazing. Great insight. This is, this is part of the pastoral care, too. 
This is, this is, pastors have to teach people this all the time. You know, when I go visit a family, when they've encountered some tragedy in their life, you know, they'll say, what's God doing to us, pastor? What have we done wrong? Uh, you know, I'll say, they'll, they'll even say, is he punishing us? And I'll say, well, you're being blessed. God is blessing you. And they look at me like I'm insane. <laughs> but it's true. God's blessing them. And what's the blessing? That they are now learning to trust in Jesus all the more. All the more. Mm. I love in verse 28, Brent, when Jesus says, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. At that moment. Right. And Jesus isn't even at her house. Right. (laughs) Because his word does what it says, and his word gives what it says. So when Jesus says, be it it done for you as you desire, I'm reading the ESV, um, his word that he speaks at that moment does what it says, and the daughter is healed from the demon. It's, it's the same thing like when you read Mark's gospel and when Jesus gets his ministry in full gear when he's thir- up to full speed when he's 30 years old after his baptism. Mm-hmm. He preaches and he teaches. And what else is he always doing? He's casting out demons. Mm-hmm. And how does he do it? With his word. He yeah. speaks. This is helpful for all of us, Bill. Oh, I agree. Um, uh, and I want to say this just because it bears repeating. Christians need to learn this and get this under their belts. That just like at the beginning when God said, let there be light, what happened? Light. The Word did what it said. The Word gave what it said. So in the New Testament, when that same God is walking on the earth and talks, his words do what they say and give what they say. And so today... What have we been given? We've been given the Lord's Word. We go to church. We go to church. What's the guts of the service? You go to church to hear who? Jesus in His Word. Mm-hmm. And He's doing and giving what He says through His words. And this is my whole point today in our talk. We as Christians must repent, or as I like to say, we must be repented of thinking that our words are better than the Lord's, or that our words are power, more powerful than the Lord's, and then be faithed all the more in trusting that his word, like this, you're forgiven. Jesus died for you. Those are Christ's words. You're forgiven. Jesus died. Jesus rose for you. We, we, are, we are to be faith in this way, to trust that word. When, he, when Jesus says you are forgiven, we are, for mm-hmm. his sake, mm-hmm. his sake only. And so if you, if you want to contradict that, this is how unbelief talks. Well, uh, my sin's just too big for the Lord. Now the pastor then says, no, Jesus died for you. Your sin is forgiven. I'm telling you. And keep in mind, you know, part of the pastoral office, as you read, like, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, remember Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So the pastoral task is to make sure, as an ambassador of Christ, they proclaim that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. God was in Christ, not counting the world's sins against us. That's 2 Corinthians 5. So the pastor's task is to preach the word of God, especially the I forgive you word, so that people will trust that for salvation. That's, that's key. Mm-hmm. And Brent, when I look at the faith of this Canaanite woman, she, none, of, none of her faith was based on any sense of entitlement. 
you raised that term because we as Americans, that's that's our whole life. We live as if we're entitled we victims. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we have to we have to repent of that or be repented of that. We are entitled to nothing. Thank you. Sal- salvation is a pure <laughs> gift from God's grace. Amen. And so that's that's why the Christian always, whether it's in prayer or conversation, will ask the Lord, "Forgive me, for Christ's sake, only for Christ's sake." I mean, today I did that. Uh, in my prayer today. This morning, when I was preparing to do my work, it was this constant prayer. My sin is immense, Lord, and you know what it is. And now please forgive me for Christ's sake. May his blood atone for all my sin. And I trust that, and I trust that only. Yeah, I love Frankie. Oh, go ahead. Well, if I I reference forgiveness to something that's in me, it can never be certain. So, for example, what if I I told God in prayer this? Now, forgive me because I'm sorry. Is that why God forgives me? No, he only forgives me for Christ's sake. Now, don't misunderstand. Does God want us to be sorry? Of course he does. But that's not why he forgives you. He only forgives you for Christ's sake. Let me give you another example. If I in prayer ask God, now, now forgive me because I promise never to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> you see the yeah. reference? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The opposite would be forgive me for Christ's sake. Now, does God, does God want us to lead a holy life? And does God want us to stop our sinning? And, you know, yes, he does, but that's not why he forgives you. <laughs> he forgives us for Christ's sake. That's it. That's wow. the only thing that's yeah. certain and sure. Yeah. Oh, Brent, I always learn when you come on. Thank you so much for um, for doing the show today. Oh, it's been a delight. Thanks for asking me. Oh, yeah. No, I always learn a lot when you come on, so I appreciate you very much. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of the day. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Pastor Brent Kuhlman's been my guest. He's the uh, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more. to Afternoons with Bill Arnold, that we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five-star reviews. Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com survey. So glad I get a chance to speak to my good friend, Dr. Greg Headington. He is uh, becoming a regular on the show, and I love it. He is um, not only a great uh, lover of God's Word, but a great teacher, and I've been uh, enjoying his teaching for decades. 
and he's with me today to talk about a little about the day of the Lord. Greg, welcome. Hi, Bill. It's great to be back on the show. Yeah, I love uh, I love the concept day of the Lord. I think every day I get up, I, I think to myself, this is the day the Lord has made. Mm. And despite all the craziness in the world, I still think, uh, in, in fact, this is the day the Lord has made. Amen. Yeah. And I would kind of like to start by uh, talking about last words today. This is kind of a fun idea you've got going for me. Yeah. Yeah. Today I'd like to talk about the very last words of the last book in the Old Testament. Maybe Malachi? Yeah. Malachi. Yeah, nice. Why am I choosing to do that? Because when we look at those words, we recognize they're just as relevant to us today as they were in the 5th century B.C. And the central idea today I want to make is God wants a relationship with us. Now, before we look at the last words of Malachi, or if you want to use the Italian pronunciation, Malachi, <laughs> but we know, we know that whenever someone dies, people often ask, did they have any last words? After all, we assume that what someone says just before they pass into eternity, if they had the chance to say anything, it must be worth hearing. So here's a few examples of famous last words. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, last words. <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks, the famous swashbuckling movie star of the 1920s, said these last words just before he died. I've never felt better. <laughs> Dominic, Dominic Bonheur is a French scholar of gra- grammar, said this. I'm about to, or I'm going to, die. Either expression is used. John Sedgwick, a Union general in the Civil War who was killed in action, said this. They couldn't kill an elephant at this dip. He did not complete the sentence. (laughs) James Rogers, a murderer who was asked if he had any final request to make just before he faced a firing squad, said, Yes, of course, I'd like a bulletproof vest. Now, these next two or three quotations have a little more gravitas to them than the ones I just cited. Ludwig van Beethoven, who in his last 11 years of his life was completely deaf, even while he composed extraordinary music, said this at the end of his life, I shall hear in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher and medical doctor of the 19th century, said this, Do not pray for my healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. And D.L. Moody, the 19th century shoe salesman turned evangelist, said this, Earth is receding, heaven is approaching. This is my crowning day. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, to raise the bar to an even higher level in the book of Malachi, sometimes called Malachi, we read the last, <laughs> books in the, Old, the last words in the Old Testament written in the 5th century B.C. through his messenger, God's messenger, and prophet Malachi, And God rebukes his own people, the Judeans, for their sinful lives because they've turned from him for years. And God makes two promises in the very last verse of the Old Testament. So here it is, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And in the first half of that verse, God gives a wonderful promise that all who honor him will, first of all, become part of his spiritual family, second, escape the judgment to come, and third, participate in the eternal kingdom of Messiah. Now, that's fantastic. Then, lest anyone take God's grace for granted, the Lord, we know it's all the Lord's word, God of word of God, through Malachi, adds a second, more frightening promise in the second half of this last verse of the Old Testament when he says this, Or else, if you do not obey, I will strike the land with a curse. Now, that's it. 
And it seems odd that the very last word in the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, would be the Hebrew word for curse. And yet, interestingly, in the very last chapter of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, we read this, and there shall be no more curse. That's Revelation 22, verse 3. Now, why is there no curse at the end of Revelation? Because it speaks of the time when Jesus returns again and sets up the new heaven and the new earth when there will be no more curse. So, Malachi, or Malachi, however you want to pronounce it, Malachi, I hope I haven't ruined Malachi for anybody by saying that. Malachi is essentially, (laughs) except you perhaps, Bill, (laughs) Malachi is essentially giving the same message to the prophet that that prophet Amos did. And Malachi said in 3.1, quote, The Lord will arrive suddenly, and he will purify the arrogant and evildoers with fire, and it will be Judgment Day. That might sound familiar to some people. It's the title of one of the movies where uh, a meteor was about to strike Earth. And somehow in that movie, certain actors in Hollywood were able to save the Earth. I don't even think Bruce Willis was involved in that one. I don't think so either. But that's, that's Judgment Day. Now we might respond by saying, now those Judeans certainly missed the scary point about the judgment and those prophecies. But here's the question for us. Are we any wiser today? See if you recognize this little tune. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy, chase all your blues away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy, get ready for the judgment day. Now, many of us are familiar with that catchy little tune, which we occasionally hear, and it did not, by the way, originate in 430 B.C. Instead, it was popularized in 1950 A.D. when it was sung by Judy Garland in the musical Summer Stock. Of course, it takes a certain kind of a man to even attempt to sing a Judy Garland song. But <laughs> you did good, Greg. <laughs> thank you. But the point is, not much has changed in the last 2,500 years because some people continue to hope the Judgment Day will be, we hope, we hope, we hope, a big celebration like a St. Patrick's Day parade in which everyone welcomes Jesus as if he were a visiting celebrity riding that on his float as we all bask in his glory. Well, there's no doubt that when Jesus returns in glory, it will be awe-inspiring when the new heaven drops down and we have a new heaven and a new earth, just as Malachi chapter 4 says. Yet, he also says that there is a cleansing by fire that will happen as all things are prepared for eternity. And Scripture is clear. Those who have accepted the grace of Jesus will become part of God's family as chapter 3 16 says they will have their names written in the book of life and they will receive their place reserved for them in heaven whereas those who wanted to live life on their own terms will not have their names written in the book of life but will be eternally separated from the lord which well that's a destiny that's almost too horrible to even contemplate it is but the gist of, of that, that's described in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, you might want to look it up later. It's pretty clear in those passages. So those are the very last words written in the Old Testament, mm. and it's pretty heavy business. It is. But as I said, those words also have implications for us. So let's talk about us. After all, isn't that usually our favorite subject? Usually. <laughs> Roman numeral two, if anybody's taking notes. How many people today do you think believe the truth of God's word from the prophet Amos 524, which says, 
Justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Well, I don't know and people believe that, but could it be that today history is repeating itself, just like the Judy Garland song, and just like the Judeans who filtered out the dark warnings about the day of the Lord, and many people assume that when Jesus returns, he will just give a wink and a pass to everyone. Most people think they're basically good after all, except, of course, those really wicked people, and they know who they are. <laughs> now, again, the central idea of this lesson is God wants a relationship with us. When we read Scripture and study Scripture, there are some basic facts that we learn. For instance, number one, God is sovereign. He's in control and creator of everything. And two, we all have choices to make in this life. So we're talking about our eternal destiny, and God will not force us to make the right choice. So if we're speaking of heaven, we must speak of the alternative to heaven. Here is a scriptural truth I would like everyone to take home today. Of course, if you're already at home, even better. I want to make the most important point about the subject of hell. Hell, that's, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you say hell? Well, where did that come from? I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. Many people occasionally think about hell, and they usually have one of two thoughts. One, I sure hope there is no hell. Or, number two, I really hope I don't go there, but can I be sure? So let's clear up this issue about hell once and for all, okay? Oh, I think that almost might be a fairly decent time to take a break. Good idea. I think in radio we call that a cliffhanger. <laughs> and that that way, that for sure, they'll be back after a 90-second break. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest, my dear friend. We're going to take a very short break and be right back. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. Greg and I have been friends for a long, long time. And uh, right before we went to break, we were talking about hell. And we uh, we ended by saying, let's clear up this issue about hell once and for all. So here we go. Well, Bill, here's the most important point, uh, point about the subject of hell. Ready? God does not send anyone to hell. Everyone has the freedom to make choices about how they will live their lives. So here's a question. If someone chooses to live life on their own terms and shows no interest in having a relationship with God in this life, then why would God force that person to have a relationship with him in the next life? Mm, Yeah. We live and die with our choices. God does not force anything upon us. The things we do in this life echo in eternity. And as C.S. Lewis says, quote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose that one. End of quotation. Whether or not someone believes the word of God is true does not change the fact that it is true, or, as Winston Churchill said, the truth is incontrovertible, malice may attack it, ignorance may deride it, but in the end, there it is. 
<laughs> well, that's that. a pretty that's a pretty bad Churchill accent. It sounds more like a Jack Kennedy Boston accent. Yeah, that's what I was hearing too. Yeah, yeah, well, you really so butchered you really butchered that one. <laughs> Thank you. That was my best shot. So <laughs> let's let's listen to what the Southern Gothic novelist Flannery O'Connor had to say. She said this: "The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it." Good mm. line. If you're taking notes, Roman numeral three, statistics about belief. How many people do you reckon believe in God in the U.S.? Well, in a 2019 Pew Research study, about 90% of Americans say they believe in a, quote, higher power, but only about 56 believe in God, and they practice their faith through prayer, regular reading of their holy book, and regularly worshiping. Now, I'm including Muslims and Jews in that as well. And that's 56%? 56% believe in God, whether Muslim, Jewish, okay. Christian, all together. Wow. I would now, think what it would percentage? Be, I thought it'd yeah, be higher. What, I, I understand. What, yeah. I would think so, too. What percentage of people believe in heaven? Well, about 72% believe in heaven, defined as, quote, the place where people who have lived good lives are eternally rewarded. Mm-hmm. We will get back to that. 64% of that 72% who believe in heaven think that they will go to heaven, although they are not so sure about their neighbor. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, a lesser number, 58% of Americans believe in hell. They agree with this statement, quote, people who led bad lives and die without being sorry will be eternally punished. Now, of that 58% who believe in hell, only one half of 1%, in other words, five-tenths of a percent, believe they will go to hell. That smaller group of people who believe in hell think a lot more of their neighbors are going to go to hell, even though those neighbors are not really aware of that fact. Mm-hmm. And about 26% of Americans admit that they have no idea about what will happen when they die. And less than half of American Jews believe in God or heaven, and less than one-third believe in hell. Now, before I go any further, I, I want to be really clear about what Scripture says regarding who goes to heaven. We do not go to heaven by doing good works or by trying to be good. In John six twenty nine, Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And later in that same chapter, chapter 6 of John, verse 46, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Now, that word believe in Greek is very important. It's the word pisteu. And it doesn't just mean I academically agree. It means to trust, to commit to, to put your weight down on. So I want to be clear about that because belief that is belief, pisteu, to trust, to commit, to put your weight down. And in Christ is how we have a relationship with God, and God wants a relationship with us. Now, why did I bring up those statistics a little while back about what Americans believe? Why is this so important to us? Because those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus have given the, been given the commission from the Lord himself, Matthew 28, to share the good news of the gospel with anyone we meet, and anywhere we are. Mm-hmm. There are different definitions of what gospel means. I know a lot of us know them, but the one I like the best is the gospel is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
Again, the central theme of this talk is God wants to have a relationship with us. All we have to do is ask him. Now, I want to say a word about the coronavirus. This is a very challenging and difficult time for our planet, and I believe in some ways life will not be what it was before. So many tragic deaths, and every death is a tragedy. How are we to spiritually process this? Well, let me put this virus in the context of someone who has experienced tragedy. And, Bill, I believe you've had Johnny Erickson Tata on your show before. I've had her on a couple times, yeah. She's amazing. Well, let me tell the story just in case someone didn't hear it. Johnny Erickson Tata was a very athletic high school girl whose life was changed forever one day. When she was 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, misjudging the shallowness of the water. She suffered a fracture between her fourth and fifth cervical levels and became a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, unable to move her legs or arms. For a while, she experienced anger, depression, and suicidal thoughts. But through her suffering, she met the Lord, learned to paint with a brush between her teeth, began selling her beautiful artwork, and has written, of course, someone else actually did the, the actual writing, but she's written over 40 books advocating for people with disabilities and inspiring so many people with her books on faith, including her international best-selling autobiography. Now, God did not heal Johnny physically because at 71 years of age, today she is still a quadriplegic. Mm -hmm. But her books, artwork, and ministry to people all over the world with disabilities has impacted millions of people, and many have come to faith through her ministry. Now, regarding tragedies and difficult times, Johnny says this. It's, these words, I'm probably going to quote them for the rest of my life. Here's what she says. Sometimes God permits what he hates and uses it to accomplish what he loves. Wow, is that powerful. Friends, God has permitted the coronavirus to ravage much of the world, and God hates the evil this pandemic has perpetuated on so many people, mm -hmm. both physically, emotionally, and economically, and so many deaths. However, God is in control of this planet, and there are some things that he loves that have been accomplished because of what he hates. Number one, many people have become more sensitive to the sufferings of others and have reached out to help them. Number two, better relations between families and between friends have frequently, though not always, but frequently occurred as a result of this sheltering. Number three, many people are thinking more seriously for the first time about what will happen to them when they die. And this very day, even today, there are untold thousands of people who have come to Christ all over the world, according to missionaries, because of the pandemic. Now, none of us likes to suffer. In fact, I think about suffering the way I think about Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I don't like them, but I'm sure they're good for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, only through suffering can certain good things happen. Think of Jesus on the cross. Mm -hmm. Or, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.30, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out to it in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
So, back to Malachi. The words of Malachi chapter 4 are God's response to those Judeans, as well as anyone today, who's asking whether it's worth the effort to worship God, even when God does not seem to be around. Malachi says, Jehovah God will answer those people who are asking the question, Lord, is it really worth it to go through all I've gone through in this life to be faithful to you? God's answer is the judgment day, the day of the Lord, which the prophet spoke about when those who believe in the Lord will one day be with him forever, and the others will not. Again, God wants a relationship with us. So in conclusion, I end with this true story. In 1909, an old missionary couple who had been serving in Africa for many years was returning home to New York City to retire. They had no pension, their health was broken down, and they just wanted to find a cheap flat, a place to live. It so happened that they were on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who had been on a hunting expedition in Africa. When the ship docked, a band was waiting to greet the president along with the mayor of New York City and other national dignitaries. The papers were full of the president's arrival, but no one even noticed this old missionary couple who had slipped away through the crowd, hoping to find housing and to find what they might do to make a living in the city for the remainder of their life. That night, the man's spirit broke as he said to his wife, I just can't take it. After all these years of serving in Africa, and no one cares a thing about us, and here's this man who returns from a big game hunting expedition, and everyone makes so much over him. If God is running this world, why does he permit such injustice? His wife gently replied, why don't you go in the bedroom and talk to the Lord about this whole thing? short time later, the man came out from the bedroom, but now his expression was completely different. His wife said, dear, what happened? The old missionary replied, I told the Lord how bitter I was that the president should receive such a tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished praying, it seems as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said to me, but you're not home yet. <laughs> Friends, faithfulness to and belief in the Lord will always be rewarded, but not necessarily in this life. One day after we have put our lives into his hands, we will see the Lord in all his glory, and we will then know it has all been worth it when he says, welcome home. That is our blessed hope. Wow. Greg, that's fantastic. What a story. What what a great lesson. I so appreciate uh, the teaching today and coming on the show and and uh, sharing with us. That's been great. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest, my good friend. And I guess that's all the time we have for today, but it's been a great uh, couple hours with you. I am always looking forward to spending time with you, and I'm so glad we had this time uh, today. So looking forward to tomorrow. I can hardly wait. That's it for though today. Have a great night. Rest well as you lay your head on that pillow. Just be reminded God's, he's got you. All right. You're in his arms. I will uh, see you tomorrow. Have a good night.
So you're listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five-star reviews. Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com slash survey.